We all face similar challenges when trading creativity for money. Around this invisible campfire, we'll listen to the kind and kindred voices of women in design and learn the stories below the fold. I'm Erin Anaker, a people enthusiast at my nimble little business, Pixology. What do you get when you cross a love for games, a knack for design, and a passion for people? Well, I'm pretty sure it's not Sonic the Hedgehog. Like, I can't be a blue hedgehog in real life. It's Kat Small, a designer of all things interactive and an ardent voice for diversity in the design and tech communities. In this episode, we dive into the realm of game design as Kat shares the unique opportunities games provide. Enjoy. In early high school, you snagged a design internship where you got to consult with brands and provide them with feedback. What did that opportunity and exposure open up for you? So when I was in high school, um, I saw a flyer for this this company called 3 Ing, and it was a woman-run advertising agency, basically. So what they did was they took in clients who uh, noticed that their advertising was not doing that well with young women. And so we mainly focused on um, uh, making sure that uh, advertisers could actually, you know, reach the young women whose, whose products they were, you know, focusing toward. Um, mm. So it was really interesting because as an actual young woman, woman, I got to really express the things that were wrong with a lot of these advertisers. So that was great. But I also learned a lot about design at a really early age. Like I was like 15 or 16 years old when wow. I was already like learning how to pitch things, learning how to use Illustrator, how to um, like create advertising like campaigns and things like that. So that was really cool because it actually showed me that, hey, you know, design isn't just about art. It's really about like a strategy in a way. And I thought that was really great. I ended up not really liking advertising very much. Um, but, you know, that was something that I learned like, hey, you know, this is a part of design. Mm -hmm. um, and there were some parts I found really, really interesting, like just um, like creating the presentations and like and learning how to to like craft something so that someone's more interested in it. I thought that was really cool, like the psychology of it. But I also learned things that I didn't like, and I thought that was really great that I got to learn that at such an early age. What types of things didn't you like? I don't really like the things I don't really like about advertising are um, some of the manipulations in a way that are kind of negative. Um, and we saw a lot of that with people who came in, and it was really great that I could help to to change that mm -hmm. to a more positive way of thinking. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I also realized there's a lot of like very negative things going on out there, and I don't know how much of an impact I can personally have on it. And also, when I was in design school, it also sort of compounded that feeling like there's so much negativity out there that I don't know if this is my space to like positively affect it. And I found also that I just like web design a lot more than um, when it came to like advertising and stuff. So that was convenient. When did you get into web design? I informally started designing websites when I was about 12 years old. And it wasn't it was just sort of like me making things because like when I was when I was about 12, 
I would create these dress-up dolls online, and I needed a place to actually show them off. So that was <laughs> my first that was my first foray into the world of like creating a website and thinking about the wording and like how it's laid out and and how people like how do I get people to look at the site and all that kind of stuff. And I thought that was really interesting. And on and off throughout high school, I occasionally kept dabbling in it, and it was really fun because it wasn't just about making something look nice. It was mm-hmm. also like I got to build something um, and I got to think about like, how can I convey this information in a way that's really going to get people to look at it? And I thought that was like, it combined some of the things that I really liked about the advertising work that I had done without a lot of the negativity that I didn't like. Right. When you decided to pursue design at the School of Visual Arts, how did your parents react? My parents were very scared when I told them I was going to go to SVA. Um, They wanted me to actually be like a doctor or a scientist or or something um, that they thought was going to be more lucrative. But after I got out and I started making a pretty good income pretty quickly, especially because I also was really interested in programming and still am, they realized, hey, maybe this is something that is totally okay. And even though they were scared, you know, they still they still let me do it because I think they realized how passionate I was about design. And I'm really thankful that they even let me do that because I know a lot of people wouldn't. Why do you think they were so scared of you going into design? Well, design for a lot of people is kind of like art in a way. And it definitely is. It's very art- artistic and it's very creative. Um, but at the same time, design is very scientific in a way and involves a lot of uh, psychology. It involves a lot of like calculations and, and things like that. So it's more than just, I mean, it's not like art is a bad thing per se, but a lot of people get this idea that when you're an artist, you're going to be hungry and you're going to be poor. And that's not what really happens when you're a designer, at least if you're very passionate about design, you generally, you know, you have a pretty good income because a lot of people need designers. So I think they didn't really understand that. And a lot of people don't really understand what design is. Um, and so they, they come into it looking at it like it's going to be art and someone's going to be like their kid's going to be broken. Mm-hmm. You know, I understand that that's a very scary feeling. Like you just got this kid all the way up to age 18 and now they're like, I want to be poor. And it's kind of, <laughs> it's very scary. Um, but when I was going into it, you know, I already had that experience from high school where I was with 3 ing and I was just like, I can actually make money with this. I know I can because I just saw this lady do it. And I have all this proof here, and I think I can be good at this, so just let me do it. And they they understood. And, I mean, SVA was the only school that I actually fully applied to, so obviously I was kind of already like, it's either going to be this or nothing else. Wow. But I, I knew what I was doing, and I was dead set on getting in. I already knew I could, so, yeah, I just went for it, and they understood gladly. Can I ask, how did you pay for school? So uh, I am very privileged in that my father, when I was born, um, I believe my uncle or someone in my family started a college fund for me when I was born. And so that is the only way I was able to go to SVA. If it wasn't for that, like my my mom didn't have a job at the time and she was looking frantically. This was during like the entire economic meltdown. So the only way I went to SVA was because my parents had been saving money for me since I was a child. So it's definitely something I tell everyone to do as soon as they have a kid or like even when I talk to them about college and things like that, their life, yeah. 
I just tell them immediately, like, save when they're born. Just start saving money because yeah, you won't smart. regret it. Yeah. So I have no debt now, and I'm really, I'm endlessly thankful for the fact that they, you know, did that for me. How do you think we could reach more kids at a younger age and not only introduce them to design, but educate their parents on design as a viable career choice? I think in America, in terms of like teaching kids about design, I think first we need to sort of encourage kids to be more creative. When I was a kid, I drew a lot and I I drew all over my notes. Like half of my notes are what people are now calling sketch notes, which is really interesting because... (laughs) When I found out what sketch notes were, I was like, are you serious? I've been doing this since I was like 12. What are you talking about? This is just like me in math class. Yeah. Um, so I think people need to sort of encourage kids to, to do that and, and be more creative. And like um, I had a bunch of art classes, and you know, that was really encouraging to me. And when I was in high school, I had a computer graphics class, and that's, you know, where I also got to do a lot of experimentation. So I think one way to really encourage people or children rather to get into creative fields like design is to really keep those in the classrooms. And Mm -hmm. also in terms of parents, showing them that you can actually make money being a designer and what it is and like what are all the different fields that you can be a part of if you're interested in design and things like that. Um, Because people, as I said, you know, they really think of it as like, oh, it's just, you're just going to be an artist and I have no idea what you're going to do, but you're probably not going to make very much money. Mm -hmm. But in reality, there's a lot of different types of design you can do. Like there's advertising, there's user experience, there's web design, there's even you can call it game design as another type of design. Um, So it's very multifaceted and I don't think a lot of people who aren't into design know those kinds of things. So I think we should really start talking to more people about it, especially you know, when their kids are probably like 13, 14 years old, when they could do like pre-college classes and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe as community members infiltrate the public school system on job day and yeah, rather, you know, because when I think about people coming into the classroom and talking about their careers, it was never, I'm an artist and I'm making money or I'm a designer and I'm making money. It was, I'm a doctor, I'm a firefighter. I'm a teacher. There just wasn't a lot of variety in in the types of jobs that they would feature. Yeah. It's always just like every everything that people think is the standard basically and any like really creative fields don't really, you know, people don't really advertise that very often I find. And it's interesting cuz um sometimes on Twitter I see like kids of designers asking their parents, like, what do you do? Like, what is this thing? And it's kind of also pretty hard to explain. (laughs) But um, it's cool to see the explanations that come out of it. And I do wish that more people would do that. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, you mentioned game design. And I'm curious to know, where does your love for game design come from? And why do you love games so much? Well, I love games because um, I, I think it's partially because it's something I grew up with. My parents were very much into board games, and so we played a lot of those. But when I was about four, five, or six years old, somewhere between that area, my mom got me my first console game. Um, And that was really, really different and really new and fun. And also we got some computer games, and those are really great. And it was just always really interesting to me how you could 
play a game and, and basically be in another body doing other kinds of interesting things. Like when I would play Sonic the Hedgehog, you know, I was like this blue hedgehog who was running really fast and, and sort of just having a good time in another, a place that wasn't, you know, the earth even. Mm. And also when it came to other types of games like simulation games, I found those to be really fun. It was sort of like playing with dolls in a way for me, but it was more interesting because I could actually like watch these things um, happen instead of having to like make a bunch of stuff up all the time. And obviously making a bunch of stuff up is also fun and I did a lot of that, but mm -hmm. it was cool to sort of say, what would happen if I did this? And then just actually create that environment and let it play out. So I think games are really great for allowing people who who are creative to like mess with that creativity even more or enhance people's creativity in a way. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons I really love it is it just it's really encouraging and it's really entertaining and it's really fun and you can do a lot of things that you couldn't do in real life like I can't be a blue hedgehog in real life yeah. um, but I can certainly do that in a game and and it's just it's always been really fun to me and then when it comes to board games and things like that there's so many interesting benefits that come from it uh, for example um, you learn a lot about strategy through a lot of different board games mm. and I've been playing a lot of them more recently and it's it's really been helping me to calm down in a way, but to also think more methodically, which is great because that helps with my everyday life. Um, so I just find that games have done a lot for me. And so I really enjoy playing them and playing with other people um, and sharing that experience with them. So, What are some of your all-time favorite games? I am always going to love Sonic the Hedgehog. That's going to be like my number one series. Um, <laughs> but I also... Really enjoy playing uh, Super Smash Brothers. Um, everyone sort of argues about which of the series is the best. Uh, most people like the second one, which is Super Smash Brothers Melee. Um, but there's a new one coming out that I'm really excited about. Uh, in terms of board games, I've really liked Dominion recently. And Dominion is like a game where you basically go around and everyone sort of picks up, buys different cards and um, uh, at the end you count up the victory points and see who wins and it's it's just a very interesting kind of strategic game but it's mm. also like you have everyone takes a turn and so you don't really know who's going to win until the end and that's why it's kind of fun. That sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah so I like all kinds of games. Um, I find that it's there's so much out there and it's always really interesting to sort of see the new things that people think up. What kind of games do you like creating or designing yourself? I like designing a couple of different kinds of games. I, since I'm a user experience designer, I really enjoy um, finding new ways that people can interact with technology. So that's like one kind is like, what are some new mechanics that I can create and sort of use to either like mess with people in a way? Like recently <laughs> I created this game where there's basically two buttons and you are, you're sort of just running forever and you don't have to care about the movement. But the real hard part is that you have good, you have like good gummy bears and bad gummy bears basically. And you have to shoot the good gummy bears with candy and the bad ones with rainbows. And if you mess that up, then bad things happen. So it's just <laughs> interesting because there's two buttons and you're using two fingers for it. It's the right and left mouse button. And it's really easy to mess that up. And so it's really fun to watch people sort of like freak out about that. And it's also kind of like exercising your brain, like, you know, cause you're, you're trying to remember which button to press 
And it's really important because it helps your reflexes. So mm. I think that's one of the really fun things about games as well as, you know, it helps in terms of your reflexes and people who play video games are actually proven to have faster reflexes. So I think that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but other kinds of games I like to make are about things like emotions. Um, so recently I made a game called Five Stages and it's about the stages of grief after a relationship has ended. And that is really wow. interesting. Yeah, it's it's been really cool to see people play it and to see their responses afterward. And we've had a lot of really great discussions about their breakups and my breakups and things like that. And so it's helped people to see that this is something normal that everyone goes through. And, you know, don't don't freak out or feel ashamed of the way you felt after things have happened. So that's been really fun too. So can you explain that game a little bit? I'm really curious how the five stages of grief after a relationship can be made into a fun exploratory game. <laughs> sure. So five stages actually came about during, um, it's, it's like a hackathon for games called the Global Game Jam. And um, I was working with two other people on it. Their names are Asia and Chris. And we actually came up with the idea because of the theme. The theme was basically saying, we don't see the world as it is, we see it as we are. And so we thought that was a really interesting sort of quote. And we said, hey, you know, one of us just went through a breakup and like they were feeling really bad about it. And we were all talking about it and we realized, hey, we've all felt the same way after, you know, this our breakups have been over, mm -hmm. maybe this is a really good idea for a game. And knowing that the theme of the game jam was actually, you know, seeing the world as you are, as you feel, we felt like, you know, we could take the five different emotions that a person feels when they're going through a breakup and, and turn those into different environments that they go through. So each feeling or stage um, has a different set of rules, um, moves differently, things like that. So um, in some stages, like the anger stage, you can actually yell words and they hurt people. Um, and in other stages, you're sort of like enclosed in a space with the other person and you either do what they say or you don't and it's bargaining. So wow. yeah, so there's all kinds of different little ways that we try to symbolize um, the things that people go through. And it was really interesting to see the reactions because it felt in a way kind of like, it just felt so familiar hmm. to the way that we'd felt. and. In a way, it was it's like artistic, but it's also it was really fun because we got to design around the way that we felt in the past, and it was really kind of soothing for us. So yeah, it sounds fun. like it would be therapeutic. Yeah, it was really great, and a lot of people really liked it, and we're hoping that we can show it in different places around the United States. So we'll see. How does game design allow others to see you and explore themselves? Games are really interesting because they allow you as a, a person to step into another person's experience and, and feel it in a way that's not really possible with a lot of other mediums. Um, so there are a lot of games that are more autobiographical. And there are games like um, this game called Mainichi by Maddie Bryce is really interesting because it goes into her life as a transgendered person and what she goes through on a normal basis. Mm. So that's really interesting. And it's games like that that I find fascinating because even when it comes to simpler games like Super Mario, people get really frustrated and they get, you know, they start freaking out when Mario dies and they're like, oh, I just died. And it's like, no, the character in the game just died. You are fine. But, you know, people still feel 
so attached to it. And, and there's something about that, um, even in games that are more simple or like more fun based, you still have that kind of attachment where people feel like they are the character. And that also happens in other situations like cars and things like that. But in, in terms of games, you combine this feeling of, you know, being the character and you can also mold a world around that. So it's really easy to sort of tell different stories using games in a way that you can really do with other mediums. So it's very, it sort of in a way helps to increase the empathy um, mm. that people feel for other kinds of people. And I'm hoping that I can use games for that purpose as well. So I'm hoping that I can make games in the future about subjects that people don't often talk about. Hey there, listeners. We've reached intermission. When I first got serious about starting this podcast, I wanted to partner with a company I felt aligned with my values and my mission. That is, a company that puts people first and believes in investing in the design community to make it a better place. Campaign Monitor is that company. They have a fantastic email marketing product and are also really lovely people. Here's a little message from them. Hi there, this is Rose from Campaign Monitor. I'd like to say how happy we are to support Below the Fold in 2014. Campaign Monitor helps designers by providing the tools and inspiration needed to send beautiful email campaigns. If you're looking for ideas for your next project, be sure to check out our top 100 email marketing campaigns at campaignmonitor.com top 100. Thanks so much to Campaign Monitor. And now back to the show. So tell me about the events and courses that you've helped start in New York and what the driving force is behind them. I have started a couple of different events in the city. So I run Tech Under 30, which is a meetup for young people who are interested in design um, and technology. So like anything related to the designer tech industries really come out and, and meet other people. and. That happened because of a couple of experiences where I'd gone to different events that were also focused around design and technology. And I was finding that it was awkward for one of several different reasons. And I was about 21 at the time, so I felt especially young at these events. Mm -hmm. um, I'd gone to several different ones where it was very focused on alcohol. And it was also like the age range was way up there and I was no I felt very alone um, and so I said hey maybe it's time maybe this is something I can start like maybe I can start a group where it's not really about alcohol and sure it's about meeting people but let's also make it so that you know we can meet in a less awkward situation like we're either learning something together or maybe we're having like a game night and we're playing something together and we're being social but it's not about drinking it's also like the younger generation, so it can, they can feel more comfortable in being inexperienced. And that's been really great so far. We, we hold meetups once a month, and it can be on any subject, really. We've started to have people from the group actually start speaking, so that's been really cool. Like, our last event was a young lady who just got out of, I think she's still in grad school, and so she talked about a class that she had actually been a part of, and they had to do like an entrepreneurship project, um, and so she talked about how uh, she started her business, and that was really interesting, and then we're having another person talk too, so hmm, we're sort of cool. trying to be a platform for younger people to not only like network with others, but also to start practicing speaking and things like that, so that's been really fun. <laughs> 
That's um, awesome. Yeah, and there's also, I'm also part of Code Liberation, the Code Liberation Foundation. And what we do is we run a lot of game development classes for women. And we started that because the founder, Phoenix Perry, had experienced a lot of negativity as a woman in game development. Mm. And it was really painful for her. And everyone, the, all of the co-founders, including myself, had, you know, we, we really loved games, but we've also noticed that the games industry is a very male-dominated field. Mm -hmm. And so we want to help change that. And we've done a pretty good job so far. We've had many, many hours of classes at this point, and lots of students have come. We've basically been, our classrooms have been full every single time we run a class, which is amazing. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and we've had, we've actually had people win grants for games that they've created after coming to our classes. So that's been really, Sweet. it's just been really amazing. And we're so happy that we can empower so many people um, and directly affect the ratio of uh, women to men in game development. So mm -hmm. that's also great. And I also sometimes help to organize other kinds of things like hackathons and things like that. So this June, I'm going to be organizing the Super Love Jam, which is a, hack a games hackathon um, that's focused on gender, uh, sexual identity, relationships, and things like that. So hopefully we can have some more really interesting games about those different subjects. It's not even about one specific group of people. It's really about sort of getting like a bunch of different diverse voices to actually create games and sort of fill the field with more than just what we see in terms of the big games that come out. Mm -hmm. What have you learned through the experience of organizing events? I've learned that it's not actually as hard as people might think. And people who organize these events really, they're just normal human beings. And it's been so interesting to, to learn how to sort of bootstrap a lot of these things. Like there's so much that you learn that I, that I didn't know, like even a year ago, like asking for sponsorship is like very scary. <laughs> and um, learning like how to connect people is also pretty like that's something that you learn as well and mm -hmm. also the fear that you get like I get a, I get really freaked out the night before every event even if I'm not actually speaking or anything like I just <laughs> get scared that it's gonna suck or something yeah but then it turns out to be really amazing and like the whole time that for example like the last tech under 30 event the whole time that the young lady was speaking, I was shaking, I was so nervous, but she did really well and people really enjoyed it. And there's something that's just so wonderful about like helping people to do these things and, and getting people together. And so even though it's really scary, it's also really wonderful at the same time. And it's so great now that anyone can really do that. Yeah. So how did you approach getting sponsors and facilitate people connecting at your events? So in terms of sponsorship, it's still sort of like an enigma for me, but I think I've learned a lot more about it. It's a lot of figuring out, hey, which companies feel like they need a more human voice, but also which companies align with the event I'm creating. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's like, how do I craft something that sounds like a human being has written it? Um, and also, how do I make it really easy for them to see how much money we need, what it's going for toward rather, and 
what they get out of it as well. And so we've been really successful in terms of the Super Love Jam in that um, MailChimp was really wonderful and uh, really helped us out. And it only took about 24 hours for that to turn around. And that was really amazing in comparison to some things like we had some issues with Target where we were hoping they would come through, but they needed uh, notice like two months in advance and we were just, Mm. you know, making something really quick. And it was... It was kind of frustrating, um, but you you learn a lot through this that kind of process, and it also um, you learn a lot about yourself. And so I'm not really used to like asking people for help, but through <laughs> these kinds of things, I've learned that sometimes it's kind of necessary. Right. And and so yeah, it's not about like your dignity or anything. It's just like you can't always do things by yourself. So you know, learn to ask people for help, and and that's that's been really great um sometimes frustrating but overall a really great experience um so how did you figure out how to facilitate connection so the great part about being an introvert is that when you organize events it's really easy to sort of observe other people observe what they're interested in and then when you see two people that are interested in the same thing um and you organize an event where they're both going to it it's really cool to sort of go up to both of them and say, hey, I know that you're interested in this thing. This person's also interested in this thing and this other thing too. Um, I thought you guys should meet and talk about that. And I've done that a couple of times and it's been really cool. And I also just like organizing events around different themes and sort of creating an environment where people feel comfortable talking Mm -hmm. to each other and then just watching them do that. I think that's really fun because I personally get fatigued when I talk to a lot of people, but not everyone is that way. And I love something, I really feel something when I help connect people and I see them, you know, conversing with each other and feeling really happy and excited to to just meet someone who likes what they like. Hmm. Yeah, I think that events where people are just shoved in a room and handed a drink are the worst kind of events. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Not, Not just because of the lack of focus, but because we don't operate in a giant open warehouse very well. We need some sort of structure in order to feel comfortable, like you said, and then in order to actually meet people in a way that resonates with who we are. So introverts and extroverts are going to need different types of connection in different ways. And just throwing everybody in a room together and expecting everyone to come up with topics to talk about that's not boring like oh what do you do for work when it's a design event (laughs) yeah yeah so providing the structure for people to operate within and giving them i think the best thing to do is is to give some sort of collaboration some sort of project that everybody works together on and that way like introductions can be skipped because i think introductions are bullshit (laughs) people will absolutely get to know one another when they have when they're tasked with something. Totally. Yeah, some of the best events I've run have been around, like, some kind of task. So the first Tech Under 30 event I actually ran, um, we did a lot of creative exercises. And um, so one of them we did was, like, I think it was, like, every 20 seconds we would have a person draw on a piece of paper and then pass it to the next person, and we split it into, like, five different groups. 
And by the end of the night, you know, a lot of people were talking and laughing with each other, and it felt sort of like a, a family in a way, like a big mm. family full of people who all really liked design. And so after that event, every time I try to at least, like, you know, greet every person who comes through the door and, like, you know, say my name, let them know what we do, and, like, um, at least try to introduce them to some people and, and make sure that everyone feels comfortable. And so I spend a lot of time, like, walking around and and checking in on everyone and seeing how they're doing and just making sure they're having a nice time and then usually uh when it when it comes to like a talk or a presentation or a q a or something like that you know we have that time for them to converse um and it's never it's never focused on like drinks and uh or things like that and then uh you know they sit through the talk they they listen and then afterward you know there's time for q a and then there's conversation around what just happened and the person who presented is like generally like a normal person too so you know a lot of people come up and converse with them and it's not really like a lot of other things I've seen because at a lot of events I've actually gotten really nervous for some magical reason about talking to the person who just presented and um, I'm hoping that through things like this I can show people like you know people on stage or are just like normal people like us and you know it's totally fine to go talk to them and you don't have to feel nervous. They're not like a rock star or even if they were, it doesn't matter. They're still just a human being. Right. Everybody poops. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so how have you designed these things to, as someone who's introverted, how have you designed your events to fit who you are and not be super draining or really overwhelming? Yeah, so the the great things about most of the events I run as an introvert is that I create the environment, which I have a lot of fun with. I love creating a space that people can exist in. And then most of the time, I sort of just like let it flow and just let people do what they feel most comfortable with. Um, And so it's great because even though I walk around the room and I check in with everyone, um, I don't always stay for the full conversation because sometimes I need that moment of rest. And usually I try to organize events with a couple of other people. So um, usually for Tech Under 30, I have Asia and Nicole, who are my co-organizers, and they also walk around and, you know, they converse with people as well. And Mm -hmm. they're a bit more extroverted. And so sometimes when I just want to sit down and take a moment to, you know, notice that I'm in a room with like 40 people in it and I just need some time to myself for a little bit. They're they're very good at taking over and sort of doing that. And so I think the thing that I've learned is that I don't always have to to be involved in every person's conversation. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I realized that, um, a lot of pressure came off of my chest. And sometimes I still do get really nervous about these things or like after the event's over, I immediately go home and like pass out and don't really converse with people for the next couple of days. Um, But it's just as soon as I understood that I don't have to be a part of every single thing that's going on. I just need to make sure that people feel comfortable Mm. and that they feel safe. And as long as that's going on and, and no one's being negative or whatever the case may be and everyone's having a good time, I've done a good job. So being that creating events can be a fairly scary process, especially when you're first starting out. How did you find the confidence and resources to execute on these ideas? I usually try to create events after they've 
the need has been validated. So when I started Tech Under 30, I made sure to ask around and ask a couple of people and say, hey, would this kind of thing be interesting to you? And after I found that out that other people kind of felt similarly, like I had a couple of people who also said, yeah, I've been to a lot of events and I've noticed that I feel really awkward there. Mm. I said, maybe it's time that I should do something like this. And it also happens with other things like code liberation, the need is definitely there. And in terms of the hackathons and game jams that I run, those kinds of things also, we make sure and say, hey, when's the last time something like this has happened? Or what's something that's not going on as of late? Or what's something that the community really needs? And when I know that something is kind of needed in a way or wanted, then I feel confident enough to go ahead and try to make that happen. Mm. And how about resources, whether those are people or sponsors or venues? When it comes to... um, finding things like space or money it's that part can be kind of frustrating in a way but i've had a lot of luck um in that people have been very generous number one but also i guess i've been very diligent i recognize now um (laughs) in seeking out a lot of different places so when i started tech under 30 i did a lot of research and i i asked around for at a lot of different co-working spaces and um, I eventually found one um, that was cheap enough for, for me to work with them. And so we would run our events there. And then we eventually ended up at the School of Visual Arts. Um, and that was because I couldn't really continue to, to pay and not know how many people were going to show up at these events mm-hmm. for the event space. So eventually we ended up at SVA and they were really kind enough to donate space to us. Um, So we were able to run events there for a while. And uh, now we're actually at Meetups HQ. So that's really cool. And that's all been because I've asked around a lot. And I put out a tweet and that's how I found the Meetup spaces because I asked um, and they were kind enough to say, yeah, we'd love to have you here. Wow. So yeah, it's it's really a lot of asking and not feeling afraid of asking you want to create this thing that people have expressed a want or need for mm-hmm. you're sort of in a way like doing a service by doing those kinds of things and so I think it's okay but I was definitely very afraid at first because as I said I I don't often like asking for help I like to be self-sufficient but um, in those cases when it comes to running events it's not something you can do very often thanks so much Kat for being on the show I am so thrilled to be able to produce Below the Fold, and I love getting to know all of these kind and kindred women in design. What would be even more awesomer is if you were involved too. On May 1st, I'm launching Spark. It's as if an online community had a love child with a mastermind group and then named it after their passionate affair. Well, maybe that's a little weird. Anyway, Spark is for independent women in design with small businesses and big ambitions. Learn more at Pixology is facilitating. That's pixology.is slash facilitating. Also, one more little shout out to my friends over at Campaign Monitor. I've been a super user of theirs since 2010 for two major reasons. Number one, they allow you to design your own custom newsletter themes and get this, not only implement them using a super simple markup, but manage it in an intuitive, beautiful UI. And two, you can have sub-accounts to manage the custom newsletter campaigns you designed for your clients. It's brilliant. 
check them out at campaignmonitor.com. Music for Below the Fold was composed by the talented Mike Edmondson, with engineering help from Rob Edmondson. Until next week, thanks so much for listening. <laughs>